We read the Holy Scriptures this afternoon in Genesis 1 again, our second sermon in Genesis. I'm going to read the first 19 verses. In thinking about how to preach this first chapter, I decided to do a little bit of combining of the verses and to preach the creation of things that are related to each other. So today we're going to look at day one and day four, both in the sermon. So the text of the sermon consists of verses 3, 4, 5, and then also verses 14 through 19. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. We read the word of God that far. As I said, the text is verses 3, 4, and 5, and then verses 14 through 19 as well. As we saw last time, in these opening verses of the Bible, God reveals to us what no man saw, that in the beginning, even before there was any man, God created the heavens and the earth. Last time we looked at God's first phase of creative work, 
that in the beginning, in the very first moment of time, God created the heavens and the earth, time, space, and matter, but he created that earth without form and void in a chaotic and confused state. Now, as we turn to verse 3 and following, we are turning to God's second phase of his creative work. Whereas in the first moment he created everything out of nothing, in the second phase, God begins to fashion and to form all of that created material into a well-ordered and beautiful world. So we find already in verse 3 of the passage that God sets to work creating one of the most basic things, the most basic ingredients for his beautiful, life-filled world that he had in mind. And that first thing that God created was light. And he created the light and divided it from the darkness. We see already here the wisdom of our God. And God is revealing his wisdom to us in this passage. That God created first those basic and fundamental things that were necessary, according to his own determination, for life on the earth. He brought light, earth, water, heat, so that plants could grow on day three. And the plants could then be eaten by the animals, which would be made on day six, and also by man. But on day one, which we consider today, God created light. And what a wonderful creature is light. I was thinking about that this past week, how we take for granted light. But how precious and how wonderful is light. I think we take it for granted. But especially perhaps in these darker months of the year, as the winter drags on, our heart starts to long for more sunshine, more light. And we can really resonate with what the scripture says in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7. Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. Indeed, how precious and how pleasant is the sun and the moon and the stars which shine that light down upon us. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And in Psalm 8, which we sang today, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy finger, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained, O what is man, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, that thou visitest him. Light is a creature of God and a gift of God to us here on the earth. Today we consider God's creation of light and all those heavenly lights on days one and four of the creation week. So we take as the theme of the sermon, in the beginning, God's creation of light and the heavenly lights. First, we're going to consider the meaning of what God did on those two days. Secondly, the timing and then finally, the purpose. We turn our attention then to Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5 to begin. And there we read, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. 
And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. We must keep in mind that in that first moment called the beginning, there was nothing but darkness. The world was cloaked in complete and utter and pitch darkness, so that if we were there, we would not have been able to see anything at all. But then, on that first day, God said, let there be light, and he created light. The people of God throughout the ages believed this testimony of Moses in the scriptures. For example, in Psalm 74, verse 16, a child of God wrote, The day is thine, the night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. The prophet Isaiah said that God said, I form the light and create darkness. The apostle Paul wrote, God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. But what is light? What did God create on that first day of history? Well, we know that the Bible is not a science textbook. And if we want to know what light is in a scientific sense or a physical sense, we have to study light itself and consult the science textbooks. The Bible is not such a book. In the Bible, God is revealing to us what is most important. Not that it's not important to study light from a scientific point of view. God wants us to do that too. But in the Bible, God reveals to us what is more important. God wants us to know that light had a beginning. We do know from the study of light through science that light is a wave of energy with rays of different intensity which beam through space at an incredibly fast speed. They say it is the fastest creature in all of the universe, approaching 200,000 miles per second. I think it's about 187,000 miles per second. That's how fast light beams through space, incredibly fast. But God doesn't teach us any of that here in Genesis 1. What God wants us to know here is that light did not always exist. Light had a beginning because God himself created it. We can hardly imagine, but if we tried to imagine that the world was cloaked in utter darkness in that first moment, and then suddenly, immediately, God spoke, let there be light, and light shined. It burst out of the darkness in bright, blinding brilliance, and it immediately shot forth in every direction at that incredible speed, shooting forth into the vast darkness of the universe. But we are told that after God created that primordial or original light, he also divided the light from the darkness. So verse 4, God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God did something else on that first day. He didn't just create the light and send it forth into the universe. If God had done that, then the light would have completely eliminated all of the darkness, and there would have been no darkness. 
Rather, God created the light and then divided the light from the darkness so that there would be both light and darkness. That was part of his eternal plan. Now, that was a miracle. All of creation was a miraculous act of God. But also that act of dividing the light from the darkness was a miracle. We can't hardly fathom what it means that God divided the light from the darkness. But it must mean that God collected all of that light and, as it were, moved it to one side of the universe, and he left the other side of the universe in utter darkness. Now, we know that light are rays or waves of energy that want to move. And that's why I say it's a miracle, because God stopped the light. He did not allow it to penetrate into the darkness. He wanted there to be light and darkness. And there already we see something revealed about God himself. God is revealing something. He's revealing his purpose and his love for distinction, for order, and for separation. And we'll come back to that later. We're also seeing here that God is the artist of artists, that God is a God of beauty, a God of marvelous, brilliant, blinding, glorious beauty. Think of what light is. Light, the beams of light bring with them color. All of the lovely colors of the spectrum are included in a single beam of white light. And when that light shines into the earth and bounces off of objects, depending on the object, we see all kinds of different colors. On day one, God also created color. God shows himself to be an artist because also in art there is the distinction and the contrast between light and dark. God shows himself a God of beauty. After God created light on that first day, he maintained the difference between light and darkness on day one, two, and three. Before there was any sun, before there was any moon or any stars. That, too, is a mystery to us that we can hardly comprehend. But it must be that God was shining the light from one side, as it were, beaming it forth from his divine hands. Because the light did not burst forth from the sun or the stars, but it emerged from the hands of God himself and shined into the world up to that dividing point with the darkness. And perhaps one way to understand how God divided the light from the darkness, the day and the night, on those first three days, is if the earth was already turning on its axis, then God turned the earth so that at one point it faced the light side of the universe. And then he turned it so that it faced the dark side of the universe. And as the earth turned in its normal way as we understand it today, it experienced day and night without a sun without any stars. But however that may be, on day four, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. So we turn our attention to verse 14. There we read, And God said, Let there be lights. And in the Hebrew, that's a different word than the word for light in verse 3. The word for light in verse 3 refers to light itself. 
the creature of light. But in verse 14, it refers to luminaries, those objects which shine light, which are the source of light. God created lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and to be for signs and for seasons and for days and years to give light upon the earth. Now in this text, God inspired Moses to put all of the focus and emphasis on these two great lights. God made two great lights, verse 16 says. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. But all of the attention is on these two great lights. And the first and the greater of the two was the sun. Moses is teaching us here, God is teaching us, that on day four of the creation, God made the sun, the greater of those two lights. Once again, God does not teach us anything about the physical or chemical nature and composition of the sun. He doesn't tell us here in Genesis what we now know, that the sun is a massive orb of burning, exploding gases and metals radiating beams of intense light and heat in every direction, and that the sun is actually a star like other stars, although smaller than some stars and bigger than other stars. God doesn't tell us anything about that. He wanted us to discover that, and man has discovered that, but God does not teach us that here. Rather, God teaches us the more important truth about the sun that the sun is also a creature of God. In the ancient world in which Moses lived, writing this book to the Israelites, there was Egyptian ideas and philosophies, Babylonian, Assyrian, all different views about the origin of the creation. And Moses was writing this in part to teach the children of Israel the sun is not a god, as the Egyptians think. They worshipped the sun. Moses is teaching them, no, the sun is not a god. The sun was made by God. The sun is a creature of God. And the sun had a beginning. It was made on day four. Then Moses also teaches us about a second great light, a lesser light, and that is the moon. God does not tell us anything about the moon. We now know that the moon is also an orb, but very different from the sun, whereas the sun is an orb of burning, exploding gases, shooting forth beams of light. The moon is a cold orb of hard rock and dust that actually does not shine light, but reflects the light of the sun. But we don't read any of that here, do we? We only read that the moon is a light, a great light, one that God made lesser than the sun, but one that God made to give light on the earth during the nighttime. We don't even read here in the text, which is very simple, that the moon is actually just one of many other orbs in the solar system, that there are many other planets, which we now know as Mercury and Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and that these other planets also have moons revolving around them. Some of them one or two. Some of them have many moons. 
revolving around them. Rather, God would have us know about our moon. And that this moon that we see in our heavens at the nighttime is his creature that he made to give light on the earth. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Verse 16, the scripture says, he made the stars also. That's really a very astounding statement. He made the stars also. The rest of the scripture does indicate how amazing and marvelous the stars are, how immense and how many the stars are. But here in the creation account, God only tells us he made the stars. That's all that he wants us to know as of importance in the beginning. It's astounding, especially in light of what we have learned through science, especially in the last hundred years or so, that there are millions and billions, even trillions of stars in the universe. God doesn't say anything in here about the fact that stars are actually collected in these massive systems called now galaxies. And that the galaxy in which our star is located is actually just one galaxy of perhaps millions and millions of galaxies of stars, each of which is full of millions and billions of stars. We don't read of that at all here. All the scripture says is he made the stars also. The stars are not gods. The stars are creatures of God. The stars are not to be looked at superstitiously as astrologers do, who try to predict people's futures and who try to find good luck and fortune from the stars. The stars are creatures of God, shining light to the earth. The scripture says some amazing things about the stars. We are mindful, for example, of Job after all of his sufferings. When he began to question the justice of God, and God came and spoke to him from the whirlwind. And one of the things God said to Job was, Were you there, Job, in the beginning, when I created the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I set the stars in the heavens? When I created Orion and Pleiades, these massive, beautiful constellations of stars? And that was meant to show Job, even in his sufferings, God is just. Because God is almighty. He is the creator of the vast heavens. Psalm 147, verse 4, says that God knows the number of the stars, and he calls them all by name. God knows every single star, and he has given a name to those stars. And he knows the exact shape, size, and purpose of every single one. In Isaiah 40, verse 22, the prophet says that God stretched out the heavens as a curtain and directed the hosts of the stars to their places. God created the stars. Modern man, of course, rejects that. Modern man, who has dismissed God from the universe, believes that the stars were created over billions and billions of years out of a big bang that supposedly happened 13.8 billion years ago. 
And they try to reason from starlight that the earth is also some four billion years old. And that is considered to be not just a theory now, but factual. Now, you may very well meet someone who holds to that in your life, and this may come up in your discussion at work. And how are you going to answer the man who says to you, well, we know that the earth is billions of years old because starlight travels at a certain speed, and we know that the stars are billions of light years away, and therefore it had to have taken billions of years for the light of the stars to reach the earth because these are simply laws of nature. We know that. We know that it must have taken billions of years for the light of the stars to reach the earth. Are you ready to give an answer to that unbelief? There's some very fascinating creation science that is taking place today. Websites like Answers in Genesis, where you can learn some of the answers to these difficult questions. There are scientists who are studying the heavens above us from the point of view that God created them in six days and that the earth is not millions of years old, but very young. One of these scientists gives various possible answers to that, and I think probably the most plausible and most reasonable answer is that it was a miracle. That in the beginning, when God created the stars, and we must realize now what that means, it means that the light God created on day one was already there, And now God took that light and he transferred it into the stars so that now the light that was coming forth from his hand would shine forth from the stars. God placed all of those stars in their place. He transferred the light to those stars and caused it to shine. Now we know that the speed of light today is a certain fixed speed. But that doesn't mean that it always traveled at that speed. Probably, to me, the best answer is, on day four, when God created the stars, he miraculously increased the speed of light so tremendously that the light of the stars traveled all the way to the earth through billions and billions of light years of space. Yes, a miracle. We believe in miracles. Maybe you wonder sometimes, why did God create so many stars? And all we have to do is say, remember what God said to Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse 5, God said, Abraham, look now toward heaven and tell the stars. He meant, count the stars. If you be able to number them, so shall thy seed be. God created billions and billions of stars as a picture to us in the very creation of the vast number of the children of Abraham, the vast number of his children, his elect people, that he would love and save and bring into heaven. If you ever wonder, why did God create the stars so far away? Why didn't he create them much closer to the earth? Why did he spread them out and stretch them out at such vast distances that we can hardly even comprehend or imagine how far away they are. Well, then just consider this. God intended that man would discover the distance of the stars from the earth. 
God made it possible for man to develop telescopes and all kinds of technology so that man would be able to learn these things. God wanted us to know how far away the stars are. And he put them there that far away. Why? The only way that we know the vast and immense size of the universe is through the stars. If the stars were not there, we wouldn't know how big the universe is. The fact that the stars are there and the distances that they are, that is how we learn how big the cosmos is. I remember sitting in a planetarium with my family on a vacation one year in Chicago and watching this planetarium portray to us how massive the heavens are. And what does that do for the Christian when he sees that, when he encounters that? Does it not fill us with even greater awe and wonder? Indeed, it leaves us in dumbstruck, awestruck wonder at the greatness of the universe. And what does that do for the Christian? It fills us with wonder at the greatness of our God. That's why God stretched out the heavens at such a great distance, so that we would worship him. What can we say about the timing of the creation of light and these heavenly lights? As I indicated, some Christians today, in the past couple of hundreds of years, have been bewitched by evolutionism. In fact, many, many Christians have been. I say bewitched because they have been deceived by worldly, unbelieving scientists who start from the point of view that there is no God, and they reason everything out from that standpoint. And then, of course, they come to these conclusions. Some Christians have then come to Genesis and said, well, we have to reinterpret this. It can't mean what it says. So one theory that arose was the period theory. They taught that when we read in our text in verse 5, the evening and the morning were the first day, we are to understand the word day, that it is actually not a 24-hour period, but a long period. We don't know how long perhaps thousands or millions or even billions of years. And if you ask them, how do you come to that conclusion? Then they say, well, doesn't the Bible say one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day? You see, to the Lord, one day could mean a million years or it could mean one day. Other Christians have come to Genesis and formed other theories. They have said, no, 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 that period theory doesn't make sense. It's not feasible. It does not hold up under scrutiny. And they decided that maybe Genesis is actually not giving us a historical record at all, but it's only giving us a poetic framework. And so that's called the framework hypothesis. They say that Genesis 1 is poetry. And in poetry, there is not a revelation so much of historical facts, but simply a poetic and beautiful description of basic truths. And so they say about days one and four, this is a framework. And indeed, it's true that if you 
Look at these days. They correspond to each other. On day one, God made light. On day four, he made the light bearers. On day two, he made the firmament. On day five, the birds and the fish of the firmament. On day three, he made the dry land of the plants. On day six, the beasts of the field and man. There is a correspondence among the days. But they say, you see, that proves that we have here not a historical record, but a poetic framework. They would interpret our text this way. Day one and day four were not actually two separate days, but this is a poetic way to describe the one event that God created light, really that he created the stars to shine light. But now if you ask them, and when did he do that, and how long did it take, they will say, well, we cannot answer that question because the Bible doesn't answer it. And so we must defer to the scientists, and they tell us it took billions of years. You can see how these theories are actually a twisting and perverting of the simple reading of the scriptures. Which reading of the scriptures was held by Christians and believers for hundreds and thousands of years until the modern age of Darwin? And now all of a sudden, Christians think they have to change the classic interpretation of the text to fit with modern ideas. We have to reject those theories Notice in the first place that Genesis 1 is not a poetic framework, or at least not merely that, but it's a historical record. Now, it's certainly true. As you read Genesis 1, you are struck by the beauty of this chapter. You are struck by the rhythm of it. It reads so simply and so easily and so beautifully and so orderly. But it's not poetry. It's actually written as history We find that already in verse 3. Just notice, and God said. That's a historical statement. Verse 4, and God saw, and God divided, and God called. Those are all historical statements, and that is written as a historical account. It is a story of something that actually happened. In verse 14 as well, God said, let there be lights. And God made two great lights. If you study the Psalms and the Proverbs, that's poetry. And then you come back to Genesis, you will see immediately, this is not poetry. This reads more like Kings and Chronicles. It's history. And therefore, if it is history, then a day must mean a day. It must be interpreted literally. Really, that is very clear in the text as well. The only way to remove it is simply by saying it's all poetry. But as soon as you recognize it's history, then it has to be interpreted literally. Go back to verse 3, 4, and 5. God saw the light that it was good. He divided the light from the darkness. He called the light day. He called the, the, the darkness night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. When Moses wrote that and the Israelites first read that, they weren't thinking this must be a period of thousands of years. It says day. And they knew what a day was. A day was an evening and a morning, just like it says. 
The sun comes up in the morning, the sun sets in the evening. That's a day. It's 24 hours in length. You can go back to the ancient Christian writers like St. Basil. You can go back to John Calvin and read their commentaries, and they agree. They speak of it as a 24-hour day. But what about that first day? We said there was no sun, moon, or stars. How could there be a 24-hour day without the sun? We know that the earth turns around in 24 hours. And that evening and morning are in relation to the sun. Well, we have to go back to what we learned earlier. That in the very first day, God did a miraculous thing. He created light here, darkness there, divided. And if we assume that the earth was turning, it turned in 24 hours just like any other day and experienced the light and the darkness, day and night. But from day four onward, day and night are marked by the turning of the earth in relation to the sun. If we cannot interpret Genesis literally, then we do not know what we can interpret literally in the Bible. If you say that that is poetic and figurative, then you are not able to know with certainty anything in the Bible that it is certain. Maybe it's figurative. Maybe it didn't really happen. But now I would like to ask this question. So we believe that God created light in one 24-hour day, and the sun, moon, and stars in the fourth 24-hour day, why did God take a 24-hour day to make these things? In the first place, the reason is not that God needed that much time. God didn't need millions and billions of years, but God did not even need 24 hours to create light, the sun, moon, and stars. In Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, the psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. When God spoke, he created. Immediately, immediately he created. It didn't take any time. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the creatures came into existence when God spoke the word. That points out, too, the truth of the way God created. He didn't create through evolution. He created through his word, his word of power. Last time we looked at John 1, and I remind us of that again. In the beginning was the Word, John writes. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. God spoke His Word, and that Word is Christ. All things were made by Christ, and for Christ. When God spoke, Christ went forth into the world and created that light. 
When God spoke, Christ went forth and created the sun, the moon, and all the stars. And when God spoke, the breath of his mouth, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit went forth and filled the heavens with the stars. That's how God created the world, in a moment, in an instant, by the word of his power. Why, then, does God take 24 hours to create each of these things? Moses tells us why God did that. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Verse 14, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. God did it in six 24-hour days to establish six 24-hour days as the normal rhythm by which we would experience time. God shows us that he is a God of order. In the midst of all the complexity and beauty and wonder of his creation, he established order. That there would be every day an evening and a morning, an evening and a morning, an evening and a morning. That's what we experience. God created the world in the beginning in that way, to regulate time for us. Finally, that brings us to the purpose of God. And now I have to call our attention to the fact in verse 4, first of all, that God saw the light, that it was good. And also when he created the sun and the moon and the stars, verse 18, God saw that it was good. It was all good. When he made it, it was perfect. It was lovely. He admired the work of his hands. But when we are told it was good, God was saying, it is perfectly suited to accomplish the purpose that I have for this creature. What was the purpose of God? Well, let's notice the purpose of God on two levels. First of all, he had a purpose for earthly life. In verse 14, he tells us that purpose. Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And verse 15, to give light upon the earth. That was his purpose for the sun, moon, and stars. To give light upon the earth. God created light already on day one in preparation for the plants that would sprout forth on day three because plants need light to live and to grow, to flourish. God created light so that we would be able to see. Without light, there is no sight. If there is only darkness, then we are blind. We would not be able to see anything at all. God created light, first of all, so that earthly life would be possible, so that we would be able to have life in the plants and sight so that we can see where we are and where we are going. 
Now I want you to notice something about the text and the whole chapter of Genesis 1. All of the focus is on the earth. I've already pointed that out before. The focus is not on the vast outer space, the galaxies, the billions and billions of stars and other worlds far away. All the emphasis is on the earth. Notice, first of all, that statement. He made these lights in the firmament to give light upon the earth. Now we know that the earth is actually one of eight or nine planets that revolve around the sun. So that the sun not only gives light to the earth, but the sun gives light to Mercury and to Mars and to Venus and to the other planets. But the Genesis account says God created the sun to give light on the earth. That was his purpose. The earth. In the second place, notice what I said earlier in verse 16. The almost parenthetical statement he made the stars also. That indicates, too, that God's focus was on the earth and the sun which shined on the earth. We know now that the sun is actually one star in the Milky Way galaxy, which is made up of all the stars that we see in the heavens at night, the Milky Way. Billions and billions of stars. And if scientists are correct, I don't know if they are or not, they say that our solar system is located on one of the far edges and reaches of the Milky Way galaxy, far away from the center of the galaxy. And then we're told that this is just one galaxy that was just discovered in the last century. Before that time, people thought that all the stars in the sky were the whole universe. Now scientists have realized, actually, this is the Milky Way. And there are other galaxies, millions of them, much farther away from the Milky Way galaxy. But all God says is, he made the stars also. Because God's focus in this vast and immense creation is on the earth. In the third place, notice the statement that God created these lights in the firmament of the heaven. I'm going to say more about the firmament in my next sermon. But just notice here that that also indicates that this whole account is from the perspective of the earth. The sun, moon, and stars are not actually in the firmament as I understand it. They are beyond the firmament. But when we look up, we see them in the firmament. It is told from our perspective. Those lights are there in the firmament, shining down on the earth. The whole creation account is centered on the earth. That's because God's focus in all of history would be on this earth. There have been things happening on other stars and in other galaxies and other planets. We don't believe there is life or aliens on other planets. But there have been things happening. Stars burning and exploding and all kinds of amazing things have been happening in the universe throughout all of history. But we don't read about that in the Bible. 
Because the focus of God in the creation is on the earth. He created the earth as a special place to carry out his plan for history. But now let's look at a deeper or perhaps you might say a higher level of God's purpose, a spiritual level. God created the darkness before the light. And we saw last time that he created the darkness to reveal his purpose. That spiritual darkness was going to enter into this world. The spiritual darkness of sin and death and hell in its wake. The darkness of death, the darkness of hell. Darkness was before the light. And then God created the light to shine out of the darkness and in the darkness and over against the darkness. God was revealing his purpose. His purpose was that there would be both light and darkness throughout the history of the world. Spiritual light and darkness. Just as God divided the light from the darkness, God created an antithesis in his master artistry between good and evil. And God would maintain that antithesis throughout history. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, what communion hath light with darkness? There is no fellowship between light and darkness. There is antithesis. There is a sharp separation and contrast between good and evil, and that never changes. We live in a day and age in which Men try to fuzzy that up. They don't want there to be a distinct good and a distinct evil. They want to cloud those moral waters as if there are things which, as if we can change these things around and what we used to call good we now call evil and what we used to call evil we now call good. But Isaiah said, woe unto those who do that. Woe unto those who put evil for good and good for evil who put light for darkness and darkness for light. God divided the light from the darkness to show his purpose to maintain that distinction throughout time. But furthermore, God created light to be a reflection of himself. And God never changes. That's the point. Light never turns into darkness. And darkness never turns into light. God is a light, John said, and in him there is no darkness at all. No darkness. There is no darkness in God. He is a light, a perfect, pure, brilliant, shining light. He is good and only good, perfectly and infinitely good, dwelling in that bright, shining, eternal light of glory in heaven. Now God's purpose was this, that he who is the light would shine into the world of darkness. He would actually come into this world of darkness and shine as the light of the world. That's the meaning of Genesis 1. When God created the light to shine in the darkness, he was pointing us to Jesus Christ. As all the prophets declared, the people that sat in darkness have seen a great light, Isaiah said. And when Jesus came and he walked in Galilee, Matthew wrote that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. 
The people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus himself said in John 8, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Christ is the light that shined in the darkness. But when Christ came and shined in the darkness, the darkness comprehended it not. John 1 tells us that. The darkness of the wicked world did not comprehend the light when it shined, but took him, betrayed him, condemned him, and crucified him. But when Christ died on the cross in the midst of the darkness, he shined more brightly than ever before. Because what does light do? Light enables us to see the truth. When Jesus died on the cross in the darkness, he revealed the greatest truth, the truth of who God is. That God is righteous and holy. That God is gracious and merciful. That God is love. And God has manifested his great love. He has shined it forth through the light of the world at the cross for our salvation. Now the beautiful thing is that having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, he pours his spirit upon us. And through the spirit, he shines in our dark hearts. We who are blind by nature, he shines in our hearts so that we are able to see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And now God says to us, you are the light of the world, shining in the midst of the darkness, over against the darkness. My eternal plan, my people, is for your salvation, to save you from the darkness, so that you will shine as lights in the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. My prayer is for you and for me that as we go forth in the week to come, God will speak that same mighty creative word that he spoke on day one, on every day of this week, for you, for me, that he will speak this word into your heart and into your life. Let there be light. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do stand in awe and wonder at thy word, which is a bright and shining light to us in the darkness and in the midst of the lies of this present age. We thank thee for giving us clarity and truth. We thank thee for precious gospel truth of Jesus Christ, who has shined in this world even through his death in the darkness. We thank thee for his work of saving us from the darkness and giving unto us to shine as lights in the world. Be with us in this coming week as we return to work and to our life in our communities. Give us
grace to remember who we are as the children of light, to shine that light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.